And so now, O Lord, we ask that you would send forth your holy word, that as we study your written word, we ask that you would draw us near to a deeper faith and knowledge of your Son, the eternal word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, so let's just look. I have us looking at the context that we've been in. Remember, we are now in John chapter 10. And um, anyone recall, I put it on your sheet, but what we were talking about last last week, um, what was Jesus teaching about? Believing in him. And he was using specific imagery, sheep and shepherds. Yeah, and right, what do the sheep do? They follow him, and he, they know his voice. Remember that image of the sheep being in the sheepfold overnight, and they would, um, many sheep for many folds in one, or many sheep for many flocks in one pen overnight, and the shepherd would stand, the shepherds would all stand at the, at the entryway to the fold, and they'd call out their sheep, and the sheep would know their master's voice, and they'd come on out of the pen for the day to go out and find find food and water and shelter, or find food and water and pasture. Um, so the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Do you remember the context for this passage that we talked about last week? That we we looked at three of the Old Testament prophets, and we looked at what they said about sheep and shepherds, and why why this imagery was important um, to the people of Jesus' day. Does any, anybody recall? We looked, ooh, some of you have your sheets from last week. We looked at Isaiah. We looked at Jeremiah. There is, of course, the one that I didn't put down there, and that's the one that we all know. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yep. So, um, but does anybody recall? Remember, we each read out different passages from last week. We looked them all up. And do you remember what, what there, was, there was a kind of woe going on, not W-H-O-A, but W-O-E, woe to the false shepherds. And we, kind of, we have that both in John 10, Jesus is saying that, but then we also saw it repeatedly in the prophets. We saw it in Jeremiah and we saw it in Ezekiel, and I put those three parts of that passage from Ezekiel. So remember in Ezekiel 34, we looked it up, remember, and we each read it out. Ezekiel 34 has a woe against the false shepherds. And um, do you remember why there was a woe against the false shepherds? What was it that the false shepherds that were, were doing that made them um, bad shepherds? Yeah, they scattered the sheep, they took their food, they ate the sheep. <laughs> yeah. instead, of, instead of feeding the sheep, they ate them. That's pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> if you had to think of one word to describe those shepherds, what would you use? Self-serving. Self-serving. Yeah, Sheila? Scoundrels. Scoundrels. <laughs> I like that. It's how dramatic. Scoundrels. Um, they're, they're selfish scoundrels. And really, the, whole, the reason why the Lord is so... Um, upset with them is because they are meant to be representatives of God himself to his people. Because who is the real shepherd of Israel? Jesus is, and Jesus will say that he is, and God is. So that the leaders of ancient Israel, the prophets, the priests, the kings, 
They are the under shepherds. Remember how we talked about in the, in the ancient Near East, very often flocks would have an, a, an owner. There was an owner of the flock who was the real, they, they were the one who were going to benefit from, um, from the flock itself. You think about, remember, well, you might, may or may not know the story, but in the Old Testament, Jacob goes to his uncle Laban. And remember, he works for him and he takes care of his sheep. The sheep are still Laban's sheep. But Jacob works for him. And that's exactly this kind of situation that we're talking about. God is the owner of the whole flock. And he knows how to shepherd, but he, he is delegating the leadership role to someone else. He's putting someone else in charge of shepherding for the time being. And these hired shepherds, um, is, that's the term that God uses in the prophecy from Ezekiel. He points out they are just temporary hired shepherds and they're not doing the job that they were hired to do. They've failed to do their their um, job, their role. And so when then later on in Ezekiel 34 in verse 11 through 16, remember we looked at what, what does anybody remember? And feel free to turn back to it if it will help jog your memory. What does God, What is God's solution to this false shepherding? He says, he himself, he says in 11, I myself will come down. I'm, I'm going to fix this, and I myself will be their shepherd. And then in 23 through 24, do you remember what else he says? What's the other part of his solution? I will set up one shepherd. And who does he say is that shepherd? He says David. How can God himself be the shepherd and David be the shepherd. And he's not talking about David, David, because this is long after David lived. He's talking about great David's greater son, right? Remember that, that phrase from that hymn that we use to describe Jesus, who is descended from David. The expectation was that David would have a descendant who would come and rule, and he would be as great a king as David, and even greater. And that was the expectation for the coming Messiah. We read through a lot of those scriptures around Christmas time in preparation for the celebration of Jesus' birth. So God is saying he's going to fix the problem of the false shepherds by sending, by first of all, by he himself being the shepherd of his people and the son of David being the shepherd of his people. Jesus is then, when he says in John chapter 10, he says he is the good shepherd. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is both God himself and he is the descendant of David. He is both human and divine. Uh, and he is the great shepherd. He is God's solution to all the false shepherds. Uh, and he goes on to describe in the passage that we read from last week, what there were three things about what it means to be the good shepherd, what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's both human and divine in accordance with the prophecy from Ezekiel. His sheep know his voice. Remember, like we were just saying, the sheep come on out and they'll follow him. They trust him because they know that, um, that he has been faithful in the past in providing for them exactly what they needed. Um, remember that idea of the, we don't really have a lot of sheep or shepherds around here, but we certainly have a lot of dogs and their masters. All you have to do is call your dog by its name. He comes running. And remember, my job in my family, my big family, was to feed the dog. And as soon as I opened the cabinet where the dog food was, 
I mean, the dog literally ran into me skidding across the linoleum with his claws. I mean, just so excited because it was mealtime. And um, uh, the dog knows his master's voice because he knows where that provision will come from. He knows who will take care of him. Um, and so the sheep of the Good Shepherd know the Good Shepherd's voice, know that, um, that, that um, the Good Shepherd is the one who will provide for them, protect them, preserve them. And ultimately, the last thing that Jesus says about the Good Shepherd, about qualifying, well, what does it mean that he is the Good Shepherd? And he says this about four times in the passage that we looked at last week. He says about four times that the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's that image, yes, of protection, that if you're out in the wild, um, sheep are nice little fat morsels of meat. And just about every predator will want to get a free sheep if it can. And you see that in the stories of David in the Old Testament, that David, remember, with his slingshot, he could take down a bear or a lion. Well, the shepherd's job was to protect the sheep from predators. And so when Jesus is saying over and over and over again that he is going to that he is the good shepherd and that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he is alluding to what will happen. He knows he knows his destiny and he knows his purpose. He knows that he came not just to lead the people of Israel and those who would come to faith through him, us who are not Israelites. He knew that he would lead them and be their good and perfect leader and shepherd and provide for them, but ultimately that the provision that is most needed is that atoning sacrifice for sin, so that the good shepherd is not just the good shepherd, but he is also the lamb that was slain. He is um, both Lord overall, and he humbles himself, as it says in Philippians, to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who is exalted, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, he goes low. He goes to the lowest point. He gives even his own life so that his sheep would be, um, would be saved from sin and from death and um, brought it back into that flock in good fellowship with the Father. Um, so, I, I mean, that... That was last week, right? Any questions about last week and John chapter 1 through 21? Or chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Okay, well, we're going to read chapters, uh, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. And what we're going to find, we're going to hear a lot of things. I put deja vu on your um, on your sheet because we're going to see a little bit of deja vu in this in this section. So um, would anybody like to start us off with reading? You can read, read a few verses and, st- and stop when you feel like stopping, and someone else will pick up after you. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give, a tr- I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, but which of, for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods, and if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you not say, do you say of him whom the Father cons consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. there he remained and many came to him and they said John did no sign but everything that John said about this man was true and many believed him, in him there great thank you any thoughts or observations so far about what we just read anything you notice that sounds familiar from previous passages that we've studied this spring I and the Father are one. Yep, he's been saying it all along. Here he says it very explicitly, almost ex as explicitly as when he said, um, when he pointed to his pre-existence in chapter 8, at the very end of chapter 8. Do you remember what he said? I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, that's, that's blasphemy right there, unless he's, Unless he's telling the truth and he really is who he says he is, that's alluding to a pre-existence, that he existed even before their, their beloved and revered, honored ancestor Abraham. Not good. I and the Father are one. No wonder why they pick up stones. Any, any other observations? They still just thought he was just They um, you can tell that, you know, they say, tell us plainly, tell us plainly who you are. And we'll talk about that, but um, it's not that they don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, they just get, they, they get it pretty clearly what he's saying, and it's, it's the fact that he's saying what he's saying that will, um, um, why do you say you're blaspheming? Well, that's what Jesus says to them, well, Either he is who he says he is, or he's the greatest blasphemer. Um, so now, looking at looking at this context, where are we? Do you remember? I mean, it says it right there at the beginning in 22. Remember where we are geographically. Are we in Galilee? Are we in Jerusalem? Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem. Where, where are we in Jerusalem? 
in the temple. And he's so specific. I love how specific John can get. He's not just, we're not just in the temple. Um, Jesus is in the colonnade of Solomon, which would suggest it's an older part of the temple, right? This is the temple that was rebuilt um, after the exile. So the oldest part of the temple would be the part that Solomon built because that was the first temple. This is the second temple. So they're in the oldest part of the temple. It is winter, and the Feast of Dedication is not most of the feasts in the Jewish calendar you lo- and that we look at in Scripture that we see in, in the New Testament were um, commanded by God in the Old Testament, commanded um, to the Israelites um, through Moses that this would be the way that they would celebrate different aspects of their life together. Like, remember the last feast we were talking about. Does anybody remember which one that was? We were there. Right, yeah, in seven, chapter 7 and 8, Tabernacles was commanded by God, and it remembered this ancient event, this very several centuries ago, when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and, um, and provided for in the desert for 40 years before entering into the Promised Land in Palestine. Well, this is a different feast. This feast was, um, was celebrating and remembering an event that happened only two centuries prior to Jesus' day and age. So in the second century BC, um, they were they had returned the the Jews had returned to Israel, but they still had an overlord, and their overlord was they were um, they were they had to pay tribute to uh, the successor to Alexander the Great. Remember that the Mediterranean basin um, was essentially prior to Roman rule during the Roman era. The Romans controlled all of that, a great empire. But before that, it had been the Greeks. And Alexander the Great was the great conqueror and leader of the Greeks. Upon his death, his kingdom, parts of his kingdom were um, divided up between four leaders. And Antiochus Epiphanes was one of those leaders. And he was given jurisdiction over uh, Palestine and Jerusalem. And there was a Jewish revolt. Ever hear of the Maccabean Revolt? And it's talked about in the apocryphal books, First and Second Maccabees. And, um, and in order to quell the revolt, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and the temple was desecrated. He desecrated the temple. Um, and that's what Daniel refers to as the abomination that causes desolation. And I, I have to get my facts straight because I can't remember. I've been, if I recall correctly, it was one of two things. Either he brought in his own image and put up a statue or he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And I can't remember which one it is. But you can see, do you remember, Jane, which one it is? I think it was too. I thought it was the pig, but I I went, I heard this sermon, not from the Advent, but somewhere else, and someone was talking about the statue, and I was like, I don't think it was that. I thought it was the pig. So, but you could see how, can you see how either one of those would be the most horribly offensive thing you could possibly do? Remember, um, Jewish people do not eat pork, and pigs are considered unclean animals, so they don't even keep pigs. Um, so to sacrifice a pig on God's altar? No way. And so the whole temple was desecrated and they had to rededicate it and reconsecrate it. And so this festival celebrated that rededication and reconsecration of the temple. So all of this we think, well, why would they why would they bring about this eight-day feast for it? And why is John telling us about it? What is important to this passage for us? What well, the, that was the last event of deliverance for the Israelites. That was the last time that they know of, that, on a large scale, that God intervened directly in their national life and delivered them 
delivered them from this horrible ruler who was doing all these horrible things to their temple. Um, so they celebrated that. And within this context, um, they're looking for another deliverer. And that provides us information about why, they're, why are they so eager to find out if Jesus is the Messiah. They turn to Jesus. They say to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Why do you think they want to know if he's the... Remember that Christ is um, <laughs> it's not Jesus' last name. It's actually his title, the Anointed One. And it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. So they're asking him, are you the Messiah? And what do you think, within the context, take a stab at it, within the context of their last um, deliverance from foreign powers, now that they are still under the rule of a foreign power, the Romans, what do you think they're hoping from this Messiah? Yeah, we don't want to have to pay taxes anymore. We want to return to the golden age. What was the golden age for Israel? David. David and Solomon. It was like the greatest hits, one after another. Not only were they wealthy, they were there was peace. They were in control of their own land. They had conquered the nations around them. They received tribute from other nations. Everything was great in hunky-dory. And so they want to return back to that day and age. And they believe that it's God's will to return them back to that day and age. And they interpret the prophecies about the Messiah in that light. The Messiah will come and no longer will we have to pay taxes to Rome and be subservient to this other people. We will have our own country back. So can you see why when they ask Jesus, point blank, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Do you think he could answer that with a plain yes or no? <laughs> but he usually does. He could, but he usually doesn't. Well, why would he not want to say yes or no? Why would he not want to say yes, even though we know it's true? We know he's the Messiah. Why wouldn't he say, well, yep, that's me. Here I am. He's not going to meet their expectations. He is not a Messiah based on their definition and their expectation of what a Messiah will do. He is the Messiah sent by God. But he's, and this is for us as well, because how often is it, does it feel like, oh, my Jesus will help me in this situation in this specific way that I want him to, and I know he will. We might say that with faith, but um, Jesus is not always... Jesus is not someone we can control. Um, Jesus is not someone um, who is going to enact God's will in our life in exactly the way that we expect. And very often, God's will for our life is far more marvelous than we could have ever expected. And how true for the Israelites as well. How much better than just a political and liberation, but to have this um, spiritual uh, freedom that comes through Jesus' atoning death. Their vision was too small for what God would do in their lives to bring about deliverance. I, so Jesus answers them, I told you and you did not believe. And his answer, his answer is very similar, oddly enough, to a similar question that was asked of him in the Synoptic Gospels. In Matthew um, chapter 11, verse 2, and Luke chapter 7, verse 19, we see John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus and asking him, 
Are you the one? Are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus' own first cousin that he grew up with is not entirely sure. And he's been saying to everyone, he's the one, he's the one. And now he's having this moment of, wait a second, are you the one? Are you the one? And Jesus' answer to him, does anybody see what his answer to them is? Do you have it, Jane? The blind, the blind see, the lame walk, the prisoners are released. Isn't that similar to what Jesus um, tells them? I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do, this is in verse 25, in my Father's name, the works that I do bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, if you really want to know who I am, look at what I do. Won't that tell you? And isn't that what we've talked about in John's Gospel with the signs? Remember that every one of the miracles in John's Gospel is not just a miracle. John calls it a sign because it's just like we think of our road signs. Every one of those miracles is a road sign pointing to who Jesus is, saying this is not just about bread enough to feed 5,000 people and God filling our spiritual needs. No, it's about who is Jesus. Jesus is Lord over all creation. Jesus is um, the pre-incarnate one, the eternal word made flesh. He is God himself. And so these signs in John's gospel are pointing that way, pointing to Jesus's identity, so that when he does die, we know just how important that is, that God himself would die for us. So um, you see John, um, John the Baptist asked these questions, and here also um, the Jewish leaders are asking the questions. How long will you keep us in suspense? Are you the one, or should we look for another? Any questions about that before we um, look at uh, Jesus' blasphemy? Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, Luke, I didn't put it on your sheet, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 7, verse 19 and following. Mm-hmm. Matthew 11, verse 2 and following. If you have, um, does anybody feel like doing a little Bible, um, I think, switcheroo, kind of like what we did last week? What I'd love to do is you can leave your hand in John chapter 10, and if you would just flip forward to chapter 7, um, can... uh, Let's see, Sheila, can I ask you, would you look for um, John chapter 7, verse 19b? And Trudy, do you want to take um, chapter 7, verse 30? Does anybody over here want a chapter and verse? Can I give you, Barbara, can I give you one? No? I can bring my glasses on. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to put you on the spot. How about you, Peggy? You want one? All right. Can you do chapter 7, verse 44? You want one, Mary? Can you do chapter 8, verse 59? Are you ready for us, Sheila? 7.19, and you can just read the second half of the verse. That's When it says A or B, what it really means is read either the first half of the verse or the second half of the verse. Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Why are you trying to kill me? There have been allusions to death attempt, you know, attempts to kill Jesus back in chapter 5, and Jesus points to that in chapter 7. Okay, does anyone want to take... Who has... Is that you, Trudy? Yeah, yeah. go for it. Uh, I'm going to say I have 30. 
Then they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Thank you. Verse 44. Yep. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What do you see about that? Is this a, a mere random occurrence in chapter 10, verse 31? What's that? What's that? It's a pattern. Jesus is, yeah, pattern of abuse. Yeah. Jesus is consistently being rejected for what he says. It's a miracle that they don't get their hands on him sooner. It's a miracle that he's not stoned twice already in John's gospel alone. In Luke's gospel, he's almost thrown off a cliff by his own friends and family, by the townspeople in Nazareth. They try to throw him off a cliff because of what he said, and he escapes through the midst of them. What was it that Jesus was saying that was so offensive? And how is it that um, that God that he doesn't he doesn't harm does not befall him until until the cross happens until he's arrested in Gethsemane? Well, I, I would point back to something we've talked about before, which is Chronos versus Kairos, which are fancy Greek words for time. And what do we think of when we think of time? I think of very often I think of a straight line and I only have so much time and I'm going to keep plugging along. Sometimes I feel like a train on a track, you know, and you're just going to keep going, 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 and there's a timeline heading out in front of you and one going behind you, and you're just going to keep plugging along. That's chronos time, time, sequential time, um, and it's just that time that will steadily happen because it's in that straight line. Well. Kronos, or Kairos time, and I'm sure you've heard it because it's a Greek word that a lot of Christian ministries will use in their titles. Kairos is about the right time. It's about God's timing, God's plan and his purpose and his specific timing. And I think it's true for each one of us that in our lives there is a sense there might be something you've been waiting for for a long time and um, something you've been praying for, something you've been hoping for, something even that, something that's good, that you know that God wants for you. And it might just not be the right time yet. It's not the Kairos time. It's not yet God's time. And there's a mystery about the fullness of God's time. Um, we know this in other, other verses. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, in the fullness of time, that's that kairos time. God's timing is at times incomprehensible to us, and yet it is perfect. There's no accident. And so that's how we know that there's no accident when Jesus is actually arrested in Gethsemane. He has um, come to the fullness of God's timing in his own life, and his destiny is about to be fulfilled. Um, any questions about that timing issue? Well, um, we can see that based on what Jesus is saying, he's talking about his good works. He talks again about the sheep. Um, he talks about how the works that I do are in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of the flock. There's that, um, that, that disbelief on the part of the religious leaders means that they will not be able to hear Jesus' voice and understand what he's saying. 
And there's, it's almost like a catch-22. How can you believe if you're not a part of the flock? How can um, you become a part of the flock if you don't believe? And that is a mystery that we're going to have to talk to God about face-to-face one day. Um, and we've talked about it a little bit in this group. But, um, but I just want to stress that, that, um, that the, the belief um, prefaces the understanding. We don't always understand what God's doing um, or um, hear even those disciples who believed. They didn't know who Jesus was either. And you see, consistently, they had hoped he would deliver Israel as well. They were hoping for a political Messiah who would free them. They didn't get it. And yet they believed in Jesus. So their misunderstanding of who Jesus was was different than the religious authorities because they, they believed in him. Um, so um, let's look very, we're going to continue to talk about that, but let's just take a little excursus. We're looking at verse, um, verse 34, 33 and 34, the Jews say to him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Um, remember that they understand what he is saying. He has said that he and the father are one. They get what he's saying. They just don't believe it. And if they don't believe it, then then they're burdened by their law to stone him for blasphemy. Um, and then, does anybody have any question about what Jesus says in response? Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? What does that mean? Does anybody have a little quote, a little number in their Bible, and it goes down and it tells you what Jesus is quoting? What is Jesus quoting? Like Psalm 82. Yep, Psalm 82, verse 6. And, um, and, you know, when I went to look at Psalm 82, verse 6, I encourage you to look at it. It's also a little bit incomprehensible when you read it and you think, what, what does this mean? We're mortals. How could... Um, Jesus be saying that God said to the people of Israel, you are gods. Well, what <laughs> Jesus is building upon the rabbinic interpretation of the centuries between the writing of Psalm 82 and the day and age where he was living and teaching. And um, the rabbis had interpreted that passage and understood that those words in Psalm 82, you are gods, was something that, um, that was said about about those people in Israel who had received the, lo- the law from God through Moses at Mount Sinai. And that there is this um, established relationship between the people of Israel and God himself, this covenant relationship. Remember, in the giving of the law is the giving of the first, the first covenant. We talk about our first testament, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Well, testament is another word for covenant, that um, covenanted, contracted, um, committed relationship between God and his people, Israel. And so that verse, the rabbis, rabbis understood that verse to be describing Israel itself, that in relationship with God through the old covenant, there was such an elevation of who they were, that such life was given to them, that it almost could be said as though they were gods, little g like immortal. Does that make sense? Um, In the sense of life. It's hard because when we talk about, we talk about as Christians receiving eternal life. 
Does that mean that we are gods in Jesus? No. That's the kind of thing that they're talking about there, that kind of life-giving. And yet we know that the law was just the precursor to the Second Testament, the Second Covenant by which we have true eternal life. That the life given through the law was, if you keep this, it's conditional, if you keep this, then you will have life and you'll be um, a, a light to the nations. But the problem with that was that the law was not kept by them nor by us. Yeah, Jean. No, I didn't oh. know what I was you're thinking. You want to share with us what you're thinking? It is, isn't it? Because, and when you look at what Jesus actually, Jesus gives us a little bit of interpretation about the passage as he's giving it. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and it doesn't say anywhere in Psalm 82 that it's talking directly to the ones whom the word of God came. So, But that's what the rabbinic interpretation was about Israel on Mount Sinai, in uh, the word of God, essentially the, um, the pre-incarnate word was given to them through the giving of the law. They even said that the giving of the law t- through Moses um, was like God's own word being spoken. And we see this in our Isaiah 55 passage that we read every day. That spoken word of God in, in Jewish thought was almost even separate from God himself. It becomes this entity, this life-giving thing. As soon as God speaks his word, it, it goes out from him. And in Isaiah 55, it accomplishes his purposes, and it comes back to him. And that, that sense, that Jewish understanding of the word of God being life-giving and almost having this separate identity was really their corner, the, the way that they had some kind of revelation in part about the Trinity, about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we know to be perfectly revealed and more fully revealed to us through Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So... Um, so that interpretation was that there at the Mount, at Mount Sinai, Moses was giving the word, the word was going out, and the people were hearing the word and receiving the word of God through Moses, and that those who receive the word of God are like gods, have this life given to them, almost, almost eternal life, but not quite there because the law brings death. So in that, well then, where is Jesus going from there to why they shouldn't, accuse him of blasphemy. It's a lesser than, greater than argument. If, if it was said of those who heard the law that they are gods, how much more so, um, they heard the word of God, how much more so would the actual word of God be God? God himself. How much more does God himself have that eternal life within him? Does that help at all? Yes, it does. Okay, how much more? Okay, so it's a lesser than greater than argument. It's from Hebrews. It's this, if this is like this, then how much more so would it be true of Jesus? If of those who received the word of God, that pre-incarnate word spoken from God, spoken to the people of Israel through Moses, his servant, in the giving of the law in that first testament, if in that context it was said of those people standing there that they were like gods because of that relationship with God and the receiving of life in some measure through the giving of the law, even though it would then create death and help them realize that they were in death, um, in their sin. How much more so, if that, 
how much more so would those would would the actual word that has gone forth from the mouth of the Father be called God? In fact, be actually be God ontologically. Ontologically means in his very being. Jesus in his very being is God himself. And the little g God looks at this like eternal aspect. Will we have eternal life? Do we have eternal and abundant life now through faith in Jesus? Yes. And will we eternally? Yes. And that's the only way in which they're talking about little g God, that kind of life that just goes on and on and is abundant. Daughters of the king. Yeah, we're daughters of the king. We're royalty. Yeah. Yeah, but when Jesus spoke in Aramaic, is there a distinction between God with a little G and God with capital G? I don't think so. I don't I don't know. And I don't have I don't have my Greek with mm, my Greek's in the car. Dang. Um, I don't have my Greek with me, and that would help on the one level. But I don't know, it would be a very interesting question. What is the Hebrew there in the psalm, and what what do we think? Because it's not just the Hebrew in the psalm, it's what is Jesus, Jesus quoting. Is he quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the psalm, would be the Greek version of the psalms, or is he quoting an Aramaic version? But um, I do know that in Genesis, there's a talk about this divine council, it, that's how people call it. Elohim is like plural of little g gods. And it's different. And what you see throughout the Old Testament and throughout Genesis, I don't want to open a whole can of worms here and leave us with only five minutes. But the, Oh, no, no, no. But the, there's the little g gods used in the Old Testament. And what you see, because remember, the ancient Near East is this polytheistic culture. They had little g gods all around them. So when God is saying... I am God, he is saying it, he is different, that he's, um, and that's how we think about, um, he is so exalted, he is so above all other, any spiritual entities, anything that exists spiritually, that they don't even deserve to be called gods. That's the way he's distinguishing himself. He is sovereign. He's the only one with the ultimate power. And so he alone can be called God. And that's why there's that different name for God in the Old Testament. That he's not just God or Elohim. He is Yahweh, sovereign, the Lord, the eternal one, the I am. Um, and th- that, that helps, I think, um, my interpretation of that is that that helps the Israelites say, oh, because in that world where, where s- spiritual stuff is all around you, and you see spiritual things happen in a way that we don't see, and you think, well, what's that about? There's power in that. And we see it more and more in our neo-pagan world, unfortunately. I saw it a lot in Massachusetts. The people would get involved in witchcraft and things like that because they felt like there was power in it. And there is, but that, that's the problem. There is. It's just not the strongest power. The strongest power is in God himself. And so any of this and that was the injunction against it for the Israelites. Don't even mess with little powers because they're, the, the thing is not, it's not the enlightenment. They don't exist. There's only one God. The idea is there is power there. It's just the wrong power. And you don't want to be a part of that. Does that help uh, make sense? So uh, that's why whenever we get enthusiastic, even about angels, I love angels and I believe they exist. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe they exist. But what we see in the book of Hebrews is that their glory is nothing like the glory of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't even, we shouldn't even think about them. 
they're not even worth thinking about. As glorious and powerful and wonderful as they are, they're nothing compared. Why would you go to, why would you even make a pit stop there on your way to your final death? No, go straight to the top. We have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Why would we want to worry about any other spiritual entities? Well, they're God's creation too. Not exactly, so Peggy. Them yeah. What they're not. Yeah. God that created them probably before He created us. You know. Yeah. But that doesn't make them God. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's 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 the whole point. And same with this about. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and that's why we don't even talk about them being. It's just like not even an issue. Do they exist? Are they whatever? It doesn't matter. Because God alone is important, the creator, sustainer, and um, eternal one. Yeah, I'm here. Isn't Jesus saying here that if, if you can believe in these gods, that is the prophets who spoke the word of God, mm-hmm. why am I such a big leap of for you? Right? Isn't that what he's saying? It's like, p- I mean, yeah, I think it's partly he that. Him. It's and partly. He wants, more, he wants them to believe more about him. Yes. Still, why is this blaspheming? Why would you say? Yeah, and by saying that, and this is really my final point, by saying that he is once again, remember the Boy Scout fanning his flame. Jesus is sort of like a Boy Scout here. He's got the flint, there's a little spark. He's trying to get a fire to spark in the people that are not believing, in the crowds in Jerusalem. And we saw it in chapter 7, we saw it in chapter 8, we even saw it a little bit in chapter 9, where there's that blind man who does believe, and it's like, Suddenly there's a blaze, and you see this blaze when for chap- you know, two chapters Jesus has been trying to like, hold on to the little tiny spark that might be there of faith in the people that are listening to him. And so, um, so you have that here too, but when they start to pick up stones to kill him, that's when he has to give up on trying to bring them along, and trying to encourage their faith, trying to step back and get them to step forward and incline in their faith. And so you see that that division that has gone along all throughout these two chapters, that belief is heightened in some, and disbelief persists in others. And I'll let you look at those um, chapter and verses on your own. But well, what does that mean for us? But, um, but that um, Jesus is talking about faith in him and that um, faith in him is more important than understanding. And we, uh, we can look at those words of the theologians, the great theologians, both Augustine and then Anselm, who said, Anselm said specifically, I do not seek to understand that I may believe. Isn't that all too often what we do after, you know, in our modern day era? We, era, we want to say, well, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to believe it. A little bit like Thomas. I don't understand this, so I can't believe it. No, it's the reverse. I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand. For this too I believe, that unless I first believe, I shall not understand. How can I understand it if I don't believe it? And that's backwards from what we're taught today in our modern day area. And then, um, so I want to leave you with that, that, that we might not understand, and as you're reading this summer, you might not understand it, but you believe it. You don't, and that as you believe it and trust, not just believe the words of Jesus, but believe Jesus himself, that he is who said, he said he is, that his, um, his life and his death and his resurrection are for us because God loves us and wants to bring us out from where we are into a, 
into a, a better place, a much better place. And that, um, the final thing about that too is that, and Jesus says this about his flock, um, and I'm going back to verse 28. He gives his flock, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I take great comfort in this because even in that, um, even if my belief or my faith is more like the little early fire that the Boy Scout has started and it's just sort of hanging out there, but it's not really going to be able to cook anything. Even when I feel like my faith is like, um, as Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, a smoldering wick or a bruised reed, and he says that so clearly in Matthew, that a bruised reed and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I think about that um, in faith, that especially as we're away from church for summer and you know maybe we're in a different, different location or um, as we're um, perhaps struggling in some way or even just barely holding on. And I think of that image that we see so often in probably countless, television shows or movies and there's always that scene someone gets stuck over a cliff how do they fall over cliffs is beyond me but someone is hanging over the edge and you always see someone holding on holding on holding on there's only and then suddenly one finger slips and another finger slips it's always that someone comes and grabs their arm and pulls them up and that is really the the best image for understanding our relationship with God, and that's what Jesus is talking about. No one will ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' grip on us is solid, and so even when we, are, um, when we don't understand or when our faith is weak, he has us. He's the good shepherd, and we can rest in that. So let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you have laid down your life for your sheep. And we thank you, Lord, that no one will ever be able to snatch us out of your hand. And so we ask, Lord, that in that knowledge, in that truth, um, in, that, um, in that truth that we trust in, in, in your very own being, we trust you, we have faith in you, we believe, help our unbelief. Um, but in that knowledge that no one can snatch us out of your hand, I ask that you would give us rest and peace, knowing that it's up to you and not up to us. And so we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.